Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast, a part of JewishCoffeehouse.com. The show on where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. Welcome to the bonus episode, where we will have some extra special information for you here, the leftovers, incredible content that didn't make it into the first two episodes. We'll be hearing some tips and cultural things about hair covering for myself, as well as some more information from Dini Weinberg and Amy Gutman. To introduce this episode, I'd like to just share some of the information I've picked up. Every community is very specific about how they cover their hair, and then every woman approaches this in a very custom manner. So for example, and I'll just classify all Sephardim in one way, even though I'm sure there are 5 million different types of covering hair, minhagim, but generally speaking, Sephardim wear headscarves or hats, whereas Ashkenazim wear either both, Chabad, for example, only does shaitals. The Lubavitcher Rebbe was very into women wearing only shaitals. And then, of course, there is the Hasidish community, the non-Chabad Hasidish community, where they have the turbans and they have the double hair covering. Everything is very culturally sensitive. It comes from different menhagim and for different reasons. And if anyone listening here knows some more about this, I'm sure this would be very interesting information. And of course, there is a wide range of hair covering amounts that ranges in the more modern Orthodox slash modern yeshivish communities where some hair is shown, some people wear a symbolic head covering, some women only wear something when they go to shul, some women don't cover their hair when they are in the privacy of their own home, even if other people are around. And what's interesting is that I've seen sources for a lot of the things. They're maybe not the majority of sources, but the hair covering stems from a minhag, even though it has become the status of halacha. There have been two major scandals in the shetel industry, which is very interesting. One was the Indian hair, the hairs that were being used to create wigs that we wore were used in some sort of Indian idol worship manner, which made that hair completely usher for us to use for our mitzvah. The Indian hair wig ban happened and that affected the shetel industry a lot. Many women had to get rid of their very beautiful and expensive wigs. We have the lace top issue, which was basically lace tops look so natural and we don't even know if women are covering their hair. So a bunch of Hasidish rabbis signed this big ad in the Ami saying and ossering the wearing of lace top wigs. Very interesting. This is not the topic of this episode, but if you'd like to hear more about that, I heard on the Headlines podcast. There's so much talk about this. And one more thing we didn't really address here are tichels. Besides for Sephardim preferring cloth head coverings or anything made out of fabric versus hair, there are some Ashkenazi communities that also hold that scarves are much better than shetels and they're more tsanua. And then, of course, you have this whole social dynamic where 
when you're casual, you wear scarves or hats. And then when you need to dress up, you wear the shaitals. And there are a lot of people who do both, even if they ideologically don't really agree or feel comfortable with it completely. So continuing on here with Dini Weinberg of Dini Wigs. Tell us a little bit about how you got started. Were you unhappy with the options out there? What made you go into this industry? So I really started really young. I took the Selway course by Georgie's sister in Baitvagan. I was 15. It was during like 10th grade, 10th grade um, summer vacation. And my parents who, who would were not like very well to do, actually were very uh, encouraging and saw this side of me that is more creative and said, let's give it, let's give it a try. And that was my start. I always remember myself um, loving to play with hair. So it was actually, I started with wigs and then I started with the neighbor's wigs and hair and my friends. And that's how it goes. It just felt really good to create something and to have people smile and just say, wow, thank you. And I guess that really helped me with teenage years, which were not so easy for me. And it just grew and evolved. And then it became a family business. My my husband joined, my kids joined, and the rest is history. Some people would like to refer to you as somebody who came from nothing and built one of the biggest empires known today in the Orthodox community. What do you have to say to that? So I really, I think from out of my struggles when I was, a, you know, a kid, a teenager, I was always in the back of my mind, I'll show them who I am. I'll make a difference in the world. And that was my dream. And thank God it's coming true with a lot of support and a lot of not alone, obviously God. And it just shows you like when you actually talk to God, he, we answer. Sometimes you don't see it right away. But he does. You had started creating your own wigs before you had to cover your own hair? I so I was I used to cut wigs and style wigs before I was married. I was also I lived in Israel and my business started there. We moved to the United States 14 years ago. And that's when I started making my own brand, making my own wigs. And up to then I was just like a regular uh, wig stylist, cheek marker, as you want to call it. And yeah, that's how I started really making. I think that first of all, to make a real difference in the world, you really have to be independent and you can't depend on another brand. You just have to put yourself out there and just take the risks and then just do it. There is this, and I haven't experienced this in your store, so I'm not attacking you, but there is this idea of you go to buy a new wig and you're really nervous because this is going to become a part of your identity. This is an investment you're making for the next few years. It can be even scarier than getting a crazy haircut, chopping all your hair off because it will grow out in a couple of months. When you chop your hair off and you have to walk in the street, it's a problem. But if you get the wrong wig, you could always replace it with a different wig. Oh, not if you had to take out a mortgage on your I house. didn't say that. I did not say that. <laughs> but you're right. We do stand behind our product. We make people, we can't make 100% of the people happy and it's just not possible. It's not always in our hands, but we're known to have very good um, customer service. So 
if there is any reason that we feel that something is wrong with the wig, so either we fix it or we would replace it without taking another $8,000 out of your pocket, like you said. Okay. So the question is this. I've noticed that the the women or whoever is helping you sell the shaitel, they keep telling you, oh, this looks amazing. It looks so nice. I haven't seen so much. Oh, you know, this doesn't look good on you. Oh, but maybe I'm wrong. I think you're very wrong. (laughs) Okay, good. I really think I really I, I feel like when I sell something, I have to love it. And I always tell the girls that are doing the sales. I don't want to hear that the client said, I want this, or this is what you wanted. So that's why we did it. It has to be something that I feel like is right for the person. And a lot of times I would just not agree to do something if I can't put myself there and see how this looks good on her. Now I'll ask you a more personal question. What has been like the biggest heartbreaking or rock bottom point of being in this business? Is there a story that you can share with us? Yeah, it was that. Yeah, I could share with you. So before we left, before I left Israel, we left Israel because of reasons for my girls. And I was packing up and finishing all my work, uh, giving my, uh, all my clients their wig. Like I wanted to finish like in a good way and to be like, to do the right thing. Obviously I'm leaving. So at least everything should be in order. I gave one of my employees, I think it was like 15 wigs to take home to give them out to my clients that, cause I was leaving the next day. And we went, me and my husband went out with, with, uh, with friends to like a, a goodbye party And then my employee, she calls me and she says, she couldn't even talk to me. She said, let me talk to your friend. And she talks to her and you have to understand, I didn't want to leave Israel. I was like on my, the highest point over there. I was very successful. I was very happy with basically she tells my friend that her brother, which was a fanatic, one of the people that are like against women wearing wigs, burnt the wigs. And, and I like, I remember myself, like looking at this guy and saying to Hashem, like, what do you want from me? I'm not leaving because I just like for whatever, for money, or I'm doing this for my kids. How could, what do I do now? And I couldn't believe it. We drove to, to where it happened. And, and I tell her, so where are the wigs? So she's like in the dumpster. I'm like, okay, we open up and all was left was the clips from the wigs. That was it. Everything was gone. And it was a very hard point in my career that I said, what do I do now? And the fact that I was really trying to do the right thing with my clients and being so responsible and it was just not in my hands. It's, it was very difficult. I had to go back to Israel and replace all the wigs slowly. It was really hard. And you have to understand that, let's say, if you had a wig and you loved it, to recreate something that a person loved and was so connected to is really difficult. Yeah, that was a big challenge. That's an incredible story because you know, I was expecting financial hardship is hard as it is or anything that's manufacturer related. Here you have something that was done by another Jew because of his religious extremism. And that's just unacceptable. Did you end up suing him 
No, he's like mentally ill and this is my employee's brother. And I wouldn't, I would just not do that. It would break the parent's heart and I just couldn't do it. You know, it's okay. That's what God wanted and that's it. It's good. If there's any message of empowerment or inspiration, I know your your family is in the family business and you inspire so many people, but you are an extremely successful woman. And I'll tell you, based on all the research I've been done, a lot of the women I interviewed are successful outside of the Jewish community. You are successful within the Jewish community. Maybe you're not a rabbi because women will never be rabbis, but you are successful due to the demand and due to a religious need that you fill and you're doing it successfully. What words of inspiration can you give to aspiring entrepreneurs or existing entrepreneurs, female from? I think just believing in yourself and just believe in yourself. Start when you're young, when you're really young and you're like under your parents' your home and you're you can't do anything. It's just you go to school and then you have your parents telling you what to do. And it's just you're not in control, basically. That's what I'm trying to say. Just don't give up on yourself. Did you have to not listen to a lot of voices in your life? Yes, of course. Would you say being Israeli helped you a little bit? Maybe. I I, I don't know what it is like not to be Israeli. But I guess it's the combination of genes and background. Thank you so much, Dini. This was so lovely. Everything else. And so helpful. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And we're back with Amy Gutman. I know this is not about shadows, but since you're from and you are an occupational therapist, what other issues come up for people Besides for yarmulkes for three-year-olds, and maybe it's an issue that older kids and adults, adult men have to deal with. Is there anything else that comes up for people who observe the mitzvahs? Yeah. So I will tell you that for children, um, potty training is a big one. A lot of boys, especially who have that pressure to put on sitsis before, that can be an issue. Another issue is the idea of this is more of an intimate level, but with relationships, sensory integration issues have a very, very big impact on married men and women both ways. So it really, really impacts how those dynamics are in a marriage. So can you give me an example of what you mean? Are you talking about straight up intimacy? Yeah. So anticipation of intimacy it has a lot to do with the sensory issues at times sometimes, and also with the actual intimacy itself and the aftermath. There's a lot of sensory stuff that come up that's not spoken in our communities. I think we have to do an episode just on that. Hold on. There you go. And, you know, my we're really trying to get Sakala teachers to have more awareness about that so that they can talk about it. Because before marriage, a lot of folks don't know that they even have this issue. And it comes up afterwards. My sister and I actually hosted a pelvic health awareness event two years ago for the community as part of our nonprofit. And it was amazing to see how many women came up afterwards and explained that because of some points that were brought up about sensory issues, it was actually impacting their pelvic health and fertility. And I wish that there was more awareness on this topic with the from therapists that are working with these couples, as well as the college teachers to kind of prep men and the rabbanim 
the women, the colleges are for the women and the Rabbanim to teach to the men that there might be some issues that might be impeding and there are ways to help them. So we just did a from sex ed panel a few weeks ago on the show. Oh, okay. But we didn't talk about this at all. Uh, and if it impacts fertility, it's more than just practical ways of enhancing your marriage. 100%. And I have to tell you that with um, second fertility, there is a component about having one child and then having fertility afterwards. And we have clients in our practice who, when they learn about this, they, it resonates with them and people don't talk about it because most of these individuals are functioning. They're mentally capable. They have regular jobs are maintaining a home. But when it comes to intimacy, there's a higher peak and level of what's going on that can impact their ability to have a healthy sex life. And it's important that we get that message out there. So that way we can allow them to be able to have children. It's really important and to have pleasure in general and not have this, the anxiety that is related to that. For sure. So you said there's one more thing that from women or from people are affected sensory wise. And that is right. So actually it's also from men, but, or actually young boys, I would say, but particularly young women, a lot of times when you have a need for proprioception, sometimes which is wild or, oh, proprioception is a sense of where we are in space. So for example, right now you're sitting and you're writing and you, your elbow yes. is bent. Now that I said it, you have awareness. Before I said it, you weren't aware. Some individuals don't have a sense of where they are in space physically. So they create little movements to allow them to get a better sense of space. So they'll suck their thumb. They'll twiddle their hair. They'll chew on a pen. They're giving themselves feedback. So for some young people and mind you adults as well, when they have these issues that could change when we're neurochemically changing, or even when we're a little toddler, they'll do self-touching. And it's a big issue, especially in the from community where we're so careful about what is being personified. And, you know, there are so many halachos that don't allow us to pleasure ourselves at some points. So for men, at least for sure. So then there's a lot of restrictions that are being made and these individuals are not doing it for the sexual pleasure. It's more for the physical input that they need to get a sense of where they are in space. So if you see a child sometimes doing that before running to the idea of we, as a community, sometimes we run to, oh, abuse, there's abuse, there's something going on here. We also have to recognize that if the child has sensory integration issues, that may be one of the ways or one of the behaviors that they're learning how to help regulate themselves. Children and us as humans, we're smart. We figure out how to manipulate and change the environment in a way that's positive for us so that we can feel comfortable in our own skin. So yes, even though our, our red alerts can be on about, we do want to explore if there will be an issue. Also remember this point, especially in the community, that there may just be a need. So we need to have them evaluate and see if that's something that they have a need for on a physiological level. And it's not so much a psychological reaction. I did want to bring that out because that is another area which we do see sometimes in the academic setting, in the school setting, and in the social work and psychological setting, that there isn't so much of an awareness. We're grateful for your kind of podcast and for the schools in the from community that are starting to talk about this because it's important for us to recognize it. So we don't stigmatize these children. Just wanted to share that as well. That's a very important point. You actually reminded me of one more thing. I think it's very relevant. I see a lot of people very from, I'm probably one of those people where I used to be, bite your nails, but on Shabbos, that's an yeah. issue. 
That's a sensory yeah. thing for that's sure. Right. No? That would be a sensory issue. And that's a so, real issue there. And you, you want compensations, right? <laughs> How to help? <laughs> yes. <laughs> How do okay, we help? So again, this is one of the hardest. Well, I could tell you some of the things I've tried. Okay, go for it. So I took some nail strengthening vitamins or something. So they feel more strong and less vulnerable. Like even if I'll put in my mouth, like it's not possible to bite it off. Um, manicures, men can't do that really. Right. It happens to be, I did Invisalign a few years ago, mod mouth, and now I don't even have the bite to bite anything off my hand. Yeah. So that was something. Those are very great compensations. I love them. I think that that's like a great way you figured out how to help yourself, which is really the key here sometimes, right? The problem is some of us won't do Invisalign on a kid or on a, you know, someone who doesn't need it. Well, I didn't do that for the bite. I did it to straighten my teeth. (laughs) Um, So I'll tell you when it comes to biting nails, the problem with not the problem, the difficulty with the proprioceptive system is that you will find another behavior. So once you stop doing that, you may learn a different tendency to have, whether it's shaking your foot, whether it's twirling your hair. So the replacement comes into play. So the best bet is to give yourself a very good regimen of heavy work. And this could be through daily yoga practices, heavy lifting, pushing garbage pails. I know it sounds so off the beaten path, but in a way, when you reset your body to have full body input, then those tendencies at our limbs are lessened. So our hands, our mouth, anything that's like more exposed, our toes for some people who are not in shoes all the time, you know, those folks who get home and they have to take their shoes off and they have to get like, is, you're like, you're, it's resonating. I see. Okay. So I'm saying those folks will need full body um, input and that helps with proprioceptive needs. And the reason we complain about the nail bang is only because we see it. But there are some people who are constantly picking their nose, sticking their finger in their ear. They're doing other little fidgety um, tasks that are helping get them that sense of space. So that would be our best recommendation just to help with the compensations. That would really be it. I do want to mention there's also one other area that really impacts the mitzvot, which is chauffeur. A lot of people and children are sensitive to the sounds and also Purim. A lot of issues when it comes to perm between the haman, the groggers, between the costumes that children are afraid of. So intersensory integration, we could do a whole episode just on this. We could do it with my sister. She can give you the whole gamut. For children, for sure, it's impacting them with the religious components and obviously with their functioning. So thanks for that question. I'm glad that you're bringing it out there to your audience. I'm so excited. We'll see what everyone's feedback is to see what follow-up episode we should focus on next. Thank you so much, Amy. I hope it helps. Thank you to Tova Trapp and Sarah Raful for introducing me to Amy Gutman. This was such a bonus episode slash two episodes. And Fran Stans, one more thing that came up after was the stockings issue and the sensory issues with that. I'm curious to hear from you if this is something you'd want us to explore on a follow-up episode sometime in the future. Did you watch my new music video? The link is in the show notes, and I'd love to hear your thoughts. If you don't know how to send me a message, just go onto Instagram, Facebook, or email me at franciscak at gmail.com. If you or anyone you know is looking to launch a podcast, please send them my way. I just have a couple of VIP podcast launch days left until the end of 2021, and I'd love to fit you in. Thank you so much for tuning in. See you in the next episode. And have a beautiful Hanukkah.